This morning we have the Ryan family who are going to lead us in the reading of God's word. In the first year of crisis, Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the month of the of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclaim throughout all the kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thou says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is a God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place is his sojourns be assisted by men of his place with silver and gold, with God's goods and with besides free will offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the Father's house and of Judah and Benjamin and all the priests of the Le- and the Levites and whose, whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels and silver and gold with goods and beasts with costly costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his good gods. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. 
When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of the God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatite, and Joshua, Joshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen. The priests and the Levites who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites and who had come to the to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua, with his sons and brothers, in Cadmil, and the sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of the God alongside the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang, responsibly praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shout with a great shout, they praise the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and their heads of their father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for allowed for joy, so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, kids, have you ever played the game, What's Missing? Do you know what game I'm talking about? I think our family learned it from Daniel Tiger. Do y'all know who Daniel Tiger is? I have one head nodding in the back. Well, Daniel Tiger taught us this wonderful game to play uh, when you're at a restaurant, and either you've just arrived, or maybe you've ordered your food, but the food hasn't come yet, and so you're sitting there, you have nothing to do, and so you play this game called What's Missing? So the way it works is everybody at the table except for one person closes their eyes 
And then the person whose eyes remain open, they take one thing away from the table. And then everybody else opens their eyes and everybody else tries to guess what's missing. What's missing from the table. And then whoever guesses correctly, they're the ones on the next time to be able to keep their eyes open and hide something else. That's the game of what's missing. And this morning, we're going to be playing a game of what's missing. You see, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I say book because actually in the original Hebrew, Ezra and Nehemiah, which are separate in our Old Testaments, are actually just one book in the Hebrew Bible. Meaning it's just one story that is being told in Ezra and Nehemiah. And when the story opens, everything is missing. When Ezra begins, there's nothing on the table the reason is that everything is <clears throat> the reason that everything's missing is that about 70 years before the beginning of the story of Ezra these people called the Babylonians they come into Jerusalem and they destroy Solomon's temple and they plunder all of its contents they raise the entire city to the ground they depart they deport the king and most of the people to Babylon so if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Daniel that takes place in Babylon as all these people from Jerusalem have been deported to Babylon. And the Bible presents this Babylonian exile, as it's called, as God's punishment against his people for their consistent and serious sin against him. So there's nothing. Everything's missing. And especially four things are missing at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Number one, the temple. Number two, the wall. Number three, the king. And number four, the law. So four things are missing. It kind of sounds like, if you say it quickly, it sounds like easily memorable. So the temple, the wall, the king, and the law. What are the things that are missing? The temple, the law, the king, and the wall. So Ezra and Nehemiah is this story of a hundred-year rebuilding project centered on three main characters, and each of those three people has one task that they're um, mostly focused on completing. So you have three people. Number one, you have Zerubbabel. Number two, you have Ezra. And number three, you have Nehemiah. So Zerubbabel, he's the person in charge of rebuilding the temple. Ezra, he's the one in charge of restoring the law and reforming the people. And lastly, you have Nehemiah, well-known for rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall, and Ezra restores the law. So the question is, what's missing? The king. The king is missing. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are really about. They're about the partial fulfillment of God's promises but missing the most important part. The people of God, by the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, they'll have rebuilt the temple, they'll have restored the law, they'll have rebuilt the wall, but the king remains missing. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So please pray with me. Dearly Father, uh, again, we come before you in a posture and spirit of humility asking you to speak to us in our lives. Your word says that throughout time you have spoke through the mouths of your prophets, but finally, at the end of ages, you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ. 
Help us to see Christ more clearly, even as we look into your Old Testament, as we begin the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are creating a heavenly Jerusalem, a city built by God, in which Christ is king. May he be king in our lives, in our church, and over the entire world, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going back to the Old Testament, and every time we begin a new series on the Old Testament, I want to make sure that we are careful that we're reading the Old Testament as Christians, meaning we understand that the Old and New Testaments are one unified story of salvation and redemption that's centered on Jesus Christ. With that in mind, I'd like to first remind us of two different principles based on how Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, how they taught us to read and understand the Old Testament. So we're going to look at what Jesus and what Paul tell us about the Old Testament in order to learn how we are to read the Old Testament. So principle number one, the Old Testament is for you, but it's not about you. The Old Testament is written for you, but first of all, it's not about you. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, that's Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is referring to God's declaration given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham's faith would be counted as righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise that God would provide him a son, even though he was childless, past, and his wife was past the age of childbearing, Abraham believed God's promise. And the Bible tells us in Genesis fifteen six that God counts Abraham's faith as righteousness. And here Paul tells us those words, it was counted to Abraham as righteousness, they were not written just for Abraham's sake alone. It was written for you. But we must remember that even though it's written for us, that does not mean it's about us. Meaning we should not be too quick to take and extract a verse from its Old Testament context and immediately apply it to our lives. And we see that, practically speaking, we consider a verse that's very relevant to our passage here in Ezra chapter 1. So in Ezra chapter 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So from the very beginning of the story, we were told that everything that's going to happen in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God had previously given through his prophet Jeremiah 70 years ago. I'm going to read what that prophecy is. This is Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, speaking through Jeremiah, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I'll bring you back to this place. Verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now I'm guessing that for some of us, one of those verses may sound very familiar to you. Countless Christians have received great comfort and encouragement from a verse like Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But I suspect that most Christians 
take this verse out of its original context. Were you aware that the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a general promise to all peoples, but that it's a specific promise given to God's people regarding the return from exile in Babylon? You see, the fact that it's a very specific promise, it doesn't mean that it's not for us. It is for us. That's what Paul tells us. This promise is for you. I want you to know that. It's very important. Genesis, or not Gen- Jeremiah 29, verse 11. That promise is for you. The question is, what is the proper way of reading and applying this promise into our lives? And the key to responsible, responsibly appropriating the Old Testament promises like Genesis 29 is found in our second principle this morning. So the first one is, the Old Testament is for you, but it's not about you. The second principle is what the Old Testament is about. It says the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus and finds its ultimate fulfillment in him. This is Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. He's speaking to his uh, Jewish opponents here. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, you search these scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me in order that you may have life. So what Jesus is saying here is that the Old Testament bears, wit- bears witness about him, but that all of his Jewish opponents, they fail to believe and trust in him because they aren't able to see that the Old Testament is all about him. This is the reason why Paul's use of Genesis fifteen six is valid, because Paul sees in a way that all of his Jewish contemporaries don't, that the promise given to Abraham finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So knowing these two things, our goal this morning is to see that the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, it's indeed for us, but it's not about us because it's about Jesus. If we first understand God's Old Testament promises as primarily being about Jesus, then I will argue that we have an even greater comfort and an even greater encouragement Because the context will show us that we have no comfort apart from Christ. So in the past, when you've thought about a verse like Jeremiah 29, verse 11, have you connected it to Christ? If you don't, if you just read the verse in isolation, then maybe it becomes a verse that you meditate on when you're going through hard times, you suffer a setback in your life, you have some sort of disappointment, and you want to know, is there anything better out for me, better for me out there in this life? And so you think about Genesis 29, or Gen- Jeremiah 29, he says, God has the plan, and I want to trust in that. It becomes some version of the idea of God closes one door, then that just means he's getting ready to open up a better one for you. But if you understand the verse first in its Old Testament context and then its relationship to the gospel, then you come to realize that the Lord has no plans for you apart from Christ that there is no good, there's no welfare outside of Christ. God's plans for good and not for evil are not a vague or superficial good in your life, but they're the blessings of salvation because you are united with Christ. Did you know that your future and your hope are secure and solely to be found in Jesus Christ alone? In other words, you cannot claim the promises of Jeremiah or any other part of the Old Testament apart from Jesus. So, as we begin our sermon series on the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, we must keep these two principles in mind. 
Number one, the Old Testament is for you, but it's not, first of all, about you. And secondly, the Old Testament is about Christ. It bears witness to him and finds its ultimate fulfillment in him. All right, well, now let's look specifically more at Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning, the main idea of this sermon is that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah shows us the truth of Proverbs 21, verse 1, meaning the Old Testament is this acted-out parable over thousands of years that confirms the truth of Proverbs 21, verse 1, which says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And here in Ezra and Nehemiah, we find out that supplies not only to the hearts of Israelite kings, who are commanded to be guided by the word of God, but the Lord controls even the hearts of pagan kings, like King Cyrus. Verse 1, Ezra 1, verse 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled that we saw. What does God do? It says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in all Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, we just spent about six months going through the Gospel of Mark. And our goal in the Gospel of Mark was to see Jesus as he's presented to us in the Scriptures. And we said one of the main ways in which Mark presents Jesus to us is as the Messiah, but a specific kind of Messiah, a crucified Messiah. Now, are you aware of the only other individual in all of the Scriptures who is called the Messiah other than Jesus? It's Cyrus. Cyrus, pagan king of Persia, is the only other person in the entire Bible who is called the Lord's Messiah. Hear then what is written of him in Isaiah chapter 44, the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 5. Thus says the Lord, I'm the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So the Lord establishes that he's the creator of all things. But he's not just Lord of all things, but he's Lord of all people. For he says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. So we talked about how Messiah means the Lord's anointed. So this is basically God saying to his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So God declares that this pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, is his anointed that he will use to accomplish his purposes. Now, there's one question that keeps Cyrus up at night. I don't know if you have trouble sleeping at night and maybe you have a lot of thoughts in your head. But there's one question at night that keeps up all ancient kings in the ancient Near East, and it's this. 
How do I maintain unity for my kingdom over thousands of miles among dozens of different peoples? That's what kings are worried about. How do we remain united as an empire amidst all this diversity? And in the three successive great empires of the ancient Near East, we have Assyria, Babylon, and now Persia with King Cyrus. We see three different strategies that each of these kingdoms and kings uses for this purpose of maintaining unity and preventing rebellion. So we're going to go through a little history lesson about how all of these different peoples and kingdoms tried to remain united. So number one, the Assyrians. So what do the Assyrians do? The Assyrians, they force the people that they conquer to become Assyrian god worshipers. So the Assyrians, they worship this god named Ashur, and they say, if you're a conquered people, then you must worship Ashur. Not only do they do that, but they take people from all over their kingdom, and they resettle them into different lands. So when the northern kingdom is destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians, what do they do? They take all different people from all, different, from all parts of the kingdom, and they resettle them in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we actually see that in our story in Ezra. If you've got a chance to read through it, we see it not in our passage today, but in Ezra chapter 4, it says this. Next week, we'll talk about these people, but they're the people who are opponents of Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple. But they say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So these aren't Jewish people, but these are people who have come from some part of the Assyrian kingdom who've been brought there in order that the Assyrians would eliminate any and all religious or ethnic distinctives. So you understand that? Do you understand the reason why the Assyrians would bring people from all over the land? It's because we don't want Jewish people anymore. We want some sort of pan-Assyrian people that don't really have any cultural, religious, or ethnic distinctives distinctives. So that's the Assyrians. Well, the Assyrians are replaced by the Babylonians. The Babylonians pursue an almost opposite strategy. Instead of resettling conquered peoples into one place, they adopt a much more, like you'd say, centralized strategy. So they take all the people of a conquered land and they bring them into Babylon. They seek to engender loyalty by bringing the outsider in, by exposing these conquered people to the wisdom and glory of the Babylonian culture and kingdom. As I mentioned, that's what you see in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a story of the Babylonian king trying to make Daniel a good Babylonian, but Daniel refusing to do so. This brings us finally then to the Persians. The Persians who are in power during Ezra and Nehemiah, they flip the Babylonians' policy. So they inherit the Babylonian kingdom. They have all of these people from all over the kingdom living in Babylon. And what King Cyrus of Persia says is, we want you to return to your ancestral homeland. We want you to rebuild your religious structures. Theirs is a cosmopolitan empire that allows for different nationalities, that allows for different ethnicities, different religions not simply because of generosity, but believing that this would engender the goodwill of the people and of the people's gods. So Cyrus is on the record. This is really famous um, ancient artifacts. One of the most famous ancient artifacts in all the world is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. It's at the British Museum, if you ever get a chance to visit there. But in the Cyrus Cylinder, it tells us that the reason Cyrus did that is to curry favor from all the other gods. So 
he's thinking, if I help to build Yahweh's temple, if I'm kind to Yahweh's people and send them back to the land, then wouldn't Yahweh become my friend? Wouldn't Yahweh then work for the glory of the kingdom of Persia? And so that's what you have here in Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason I go through all of those successive kingdoms and all the different strategies they adopt is because the Bible is consistently clear that no matter what the intention is of all those kings and kingdoms, that the Lord has his own purposes in them. The Lord uses the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Lord uses the Persians to accomplish his own purposes. The takeaway for us is that God uses the great kings and even the different foreign policies of those kingdoms for his purposes of fulfilling his promises to his people. It's easy for us to become discouraged, I think, or overwhelmed, particularly when we read the news these days, especially when it concerns these like, you know, massive geopolitical affairs that we have no control over. But the scriptures remind us that nothing is outside of God's control. Even the hearts of the most powerful people in the world are like pawns in the hand of God. Our family recently has gotten into chess for the, over the past couple months and really love playing chess, but I'm not very good at it. I think when you think about chess, like what distinguishes someone who, from, some, from someone who knows the rules of chess and can play, but someone who really understands the game? For me, I know the rules. I know what every piece can do, but I only can only think like one or two steps ahead, right? I can only like analyze the board as it is now and think what is maybe my best move now? But what do the grandmasters do? They have a plan. They can see not just one, two steps ahead, but three, four, or five steps ahead. And when you're playing them, they're controlling you. You think that you're making every move on your own, but really they are guiding you to their ultimate end checkmate. And that's what the Old Testament is. All the Old Testament kings or kingdoms are like pawns in God's hands. And he is moving toward a particular purpose and an end centered in Jesus. God not only turns kings' hearts, but the great hope and comfort of the Christian is that we know why he turns kings' hearts. We know to what end and purpose he is turning kings' hearts. It's to fulfill his sovereign plan and his purposes, to fulfill the promises that he has given to his people. God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises to us. That is the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. See, Cyrus simply believes that he's pursuing a wise foreign policy in allowing the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple, hoping that it will lead to stability for his kingdom and glory for the Persian people. But we know better. We know God's ultimate designs and purposes in turning and shaping the heart of Cyrus. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see, men on earth, they squabble and fight and bicker over limited resources and ideologies, man-made borders, while the Lord, it says, the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. Why? Why does the Lord laugh? The Lord laughs because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. 
So the Lord turns the heart of King Cyrus. It says even in our scripture that the Lord turns the heart of the people. It says he stirs in the heart of King Cyrus to send the Jews back to uh, Jerusalem, and he stirs the heart of the people, the Levites, the priests, and many of the people to return to the land as well. And by the end of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple will have been rebuilt, the law will have been restored, reforms will have been begun, the city wall will have been rebuilt. Yet, as we said at the beginning, there remains something missing. Acts chapter 4, 24 through 28 tells us what was missing. This is after Jesus has been resurrected. His disciples are gathering together. They're receiving opposition. And they say this, when they heard this, they lifted their voices together to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes, they quote what I just read in Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, the early apostles saw themselves as living the reality of Psalm chapter 2 in their lives. They understood that by the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Lord's Messiah was missing. You see, because even though Cyrus is called the Lord's Messiah, he's not the true Messiah. Because as we'll see in the coming weeks, even though Cyrus could issue an imperial decree to return the Jews to the land and offer the materials necessary to rebuild the physical temple, he could not solve the true problem that the Israelites had, the true problem of exile, which is sin and alienation from God. There's no human heart, no king's heart, that God could turn in order to solve that problem. The Lord knows that there's no stirring of man's heart that will be able to save man himself. One of the great lessons of salvation is that we cannot save ourselves, but God can. God continues to turn the hearts of kings to accomplish his purpose of fulfilling his promises to his people. For the disciples continue in Acts chapter 4. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So Herod and Pontius Pilate are the kings of that day. And what does the Lord stir their hearts to do? It says, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You catch that? Herod and Pontius Pilate, they thought they were acting of their own free will. They were doing what they thought was best in their own particular situation for the good and stability of the Roman Empire, for maintaining their status and position. But God's words tells us that there was a deeper purpose that God had for Herod and for Pontius Pilate to do whatever his hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And what is it that God had predestined to take place? What did God do through Herod and Pontius Pilate? Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, he's not like Cyrus. See, Cyrus is a far-off king in a distant land who gives a small portion of his treasury to rebuild a physical temple in order to save himself, really. 
right? Because why does Cyrus have this policy? It's not because he's so generous. It's to save himself. But Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, he's the king who leaves the immeasurable riches of heaven and he gives his own body as the temple in the most selfless act of loving service, not to save himself, but to save us. And he does it for you. Because we go back to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is how we are to read the Old Testament promises through the lens of Christ. The plan and predestination that God always intended to do through human kings, but ultimately through his son, the true Messiah. The Lord knows the plans he has for you. He has plans for your welfare, not for your evil. He has plans to give you a future and a hope. But you have to see that all of those plans are centered in Christ. There's no hope for us outside of him. God's people are not simply to rebuild a temple, a physical temple and a city wall. The real future and the hope that God plans for them and for us is the salvation that he offers to his people through his Messiah, his King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's where we're going to spend the next seven or eight weeks looking at Ezra Maya. What's missing? The King is missing, but the King is coming and his name is Christ. Let's pray. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your faithfulness to us is great. We thank you that as we can look back at your word and see that Christ indeed was missing at the end of Esmer and Nehemiah, that the people were still in exile. They're still stuck in their sins. We can rejoice that Christ is no longer missing, that he is present and he is among us, that he has given of himself fully and completely on the cross, that he has died for us, that he was raised for us, and that he lives for us, and that we can share in his life. We pray, God, indeed, that he would not be missing from our church. I pray that as we get caught up in building a church, we want to build something that lasts. We want to build something that is for the good of our families and our community. But I pray that in doing so, that we would not lose sight of Christ. I pray that he would indeed be the center of our lives and of our faith, of our church community. I pray that he would be the one that we present to those who come into our doors. We pray for our outreach next week. We pray that you bring many people in order that they might realize what is missing from their lives, and that is Christ. And so I pray that we would indeed claim the promises of Jeremiah 29, 11, that we would know that you have a great plan for us, but that is not a plan apart from Jesus, but is a plan in him, with him, and through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.